This episode of Live from CapTime's IdeaFest is sponsored by Exact Sciences. Learn more about Exact Sciences' mission to beat cancer through early detection at exactsciences.com. Hello, and welcome to Live from CapTime's IdeaFest. I'm Eric Lorenzen. Over the course of the coming weeks, we're going to be bringing you recordings from the second annual CapTime's IdeaFest, a two-day event on the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus full of smart conversations about politics, community, and culture. Today, we bring you the State of American Politics in 2018, a panel discussion that touched on the Donald Trump administration, campaign finance, the midterm elections, and the role of young people in American politics. The talk included David Axelrod, a former senior advisor and campaign strategist for President Barack Obama, and the current host of the podcast, The Axe Files. I think the greatest threat we face as a country now is cynicism. If we allow cynicism to win this notion that we can't make a difference, then we are really lost. Dan Balls, a longtime political reporter and author who serves as chief correspondent for The Washington Post. You have to know that there are a lot of people within the government who see the president in the same way that people outside of the government see him, as somebody who flies off the handle, and yet they are working through that. Barbara Lawton a former lieutenant governor of Wisconsin who now serves on the advisory boards for the Wisconsin Institute for Public Policy and Service and the Millennial Action Project. There are too many people in my generation who don't want to step aside, who don't want to make space. And finally, the event's moderator, David Marinus, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who serves as associate editor of The Washington Post. My approach has been to try to understand why people are the way they are, the forces that shape them, both sociologically, culturally, geographically. Gossip doesn't play any role in that. All right, let's get started. I hope you enjoy the talk. I just want to say before you start, I, I'm invited to Madison by David Marinus to this august occasion, but I figure it's Madison, I'm, we're going to be on the campus, <laughs> and I show up dressed accordingly, <laughs> and I think it's the first time I've seen you in a tie. No. <laughs> I'm very self-conscious. I have a great answer for that, which is that my wife is here. Uh, <laughs> And your wife isn't. Yes, so let's not tell her about this. <laughs> Thank you all for coming tonight. Um, I'm here because the Capital Times is in my blood, and it's a way for me through this Idea Fest to honor my father, Elliot Marinus, and the progressive traditions that the Capital Times represents and to honor Madison, which um, in many ways uh, saved my family. And so my whole family wants to honor the city and the Capital Times in that way. As the editor of the Capital Times, uh, my father was instrumental in 
sort of breaking through the barriers uh, of traditional journalism and promoting women out of the society pages and giving them substantial uh, roles in covering uh, the state and the city. And he always understood that change did not come without a push. And so in that spirit, I'm glad that some people pushed us even here tonight. Um, it's essential for change. And so we'll move onward from there. I had the pleasure of being on a panel with Barbara a few months ago here in the union uh, for the 60s reunion. And uh, it was the highlight of the, of the weekend for me to, to, to listen to Barbara and to be with her for that period. And so I'm delighted that she's here again Thank today, tonight. Um, Dan Balls and I have worked <laughs> together for 40 Oh my. Years? 40 years, <laughs> right. I came in 77 to the post and he came in 78. And uh, I have to say that there are different little thrills to being a journalist. And for me, one of the great moments of joy always comes every four years when I sit next to Dan and we're both pounding out stories at the uh, political conventions. It, just, it always just feels so good to be part of that with Dan. X and I have very uh, similar backgrounds, both related to New York and to our fathers and to the McCarthy era to some extent. And we also have very different but deep relationships with Barack Obama. <laughs> I know the Barack Obama from before he ever got into politics and no one knows the Barack Obama after he got into politics better than David Axelrod. So it's a delight for me to be with you three. Thank Great you. Great to be with you. Great to be here. At the beginning of this week, uh, Dan Balls wrote for the Washington Post, turmoil has been the state of things from the day President Trump was sworn into office, but rarely has the chaos felt as acute as on the opening day of what could be a fateful week. I doubt even Dan realized how deeply emotional <laughs> and defining this week would be. What happened in the past 36 hours has to be on everyone's mind, embedded in our communal hippocampus. <laughs> a, a, a bit of science that Dr. Ford has taught us all. And I thought I'd, the, only, the best way to start tonight was with Barbara and sort of getting a sense of what this 36 hours has been like for you, where you were when you watched Dr. Ford, what emotions were running through you. Um, you know, sort of every woman must have felt pretty much the same way, but I, I want you to sort of describe that. Thank you. Um, it was a really hard time. I chose to watch this alone because I didn't want to hear anyone else's voices or have it interrupted, and I wanted to take it in in its fullness. And once we got past Senator Grassley's very defensive opening, and I thought, oh, God, one more defensive male that we have to listen to, um, the women in the room know what I'm talking about. Then when Dr. Ford started her testimony, it was like a bump stock trigger that just uh, released unbelievable emotion, anger, um, fear, issues coming forward. 
and tremendous heartbreak. I mean, I listened to it at times just in tears, not just for her, but for the children and the women across the globe that have suffered sexual violence. And I don't know a single woman who hasn't suffered unwanted sexual advances or sexual violence at some level. And so it has been a factor that has defined our lives in so many ways. That, for me, um, listening to her testimony, I also wanted to be sure that people like my daughter who has suffered sexual violence would get a chance to listen to it in its entirety because it was instructive. She was not only candid and clear, and, um, but she, with her scientific background, was instructive for how to think about and deal and what the process is for someone. And it will be of enduring great value for people um, for, forever. And then, and then it started with Kavanaugh's testimony. And he alternately kind of... Um, <laughs> bellowed and bawled, and it was it was extraordinary. And as soon as he stopped that opening statement that revealed his entire political, his sense of this being a political assault instead of having understood what had just been brought out in the testimony of Dr. Ford before, so he finishes his bellowing and bawling, and all of the Republican men kind of pile on. They've set that woman aside who was meant to question, and they all literally pile on. And, and it felt like exactly what Dr. Ford had felt when there were two men on top of her in that room. And what we heard was... Um, it was what we heard... and saw demonstrated was that this man has no potential for judicial independence and he does not have a temperament to sit on our highest court. And I was, as my heart was broken for those children and women, as someone who has such tremendous respect for the institutions of our democracy, my heart was broken for what is happening to our country and wondering how we're going to find our way out of this. And even as all of those senators consider their vote, even um, this is an important part of it, but we're being distracted from other reasons why this man should not sit on our court, and there are myriad reasons. Dan, you were in Washington when all of this was breaking. Um, and as a journalist, you write the first draft of history. What do, you th what do you think will be remembered from this week, and how defining was it in terms of where this nation is? Well, it was very defining of where we are at this moment, which is a deeply, deeply divided country. Um, you know, the word tribal has become a cliche, and yet it's real. Um, and I think there are two things about yesterday that will be lasting. One is her testimony. Um, which, as Barbara said, had an, uh, an amazingly compelling quality to it because it was, it was genuine, um, it was powerful. You know, I, I, I wrote today that Washington is a town of, you know, prepared sound bites and focus group language and all of that, and that what she offered was quite the opposite, which is just to show in a totally authentic way the power of simple language. And I think that, that 
that morning session that ended at whatever it was, one o'clock in the afternoon. Um, I think there were there was almost nobody who watched that testimony who did not find her credible. And so I think that that will last. I think the other thing that will it was so revealing is what happened in the afternoon, which was after that moment, we went back into tribal warfare. Um, and um, not only is the process for picking and confirming Supreme Court justices clearly broken at this point, but there seems to be no way out of that. Um, and I think it speaks to the broader breakdown of democracy, which Barbara alluded to. Um, you know, it's, this, this didn't happen because of Donald Trump. Um, we were moving in that direction well before Trump got elected. But there's no question that it has deepened and it has intensified. Um, and, the, and the country now is at such loggerheads um, that it would take remarkable leadership uh, to, to bring us out of that, and I'm not sure that there is somebody who can do that at this point. Well, I think that um, uh, we were moving in that direction before. You're quite right, and Justice Garland can attest to that. But uh, the thing that's different is that uh, we now have a president and a party that's following him that is all too willing to exploit those divisions in ways that um, go beyond what we were accustomed to. I think what happened yesterday was the uh, testimony of Dr. Ford was just as described. It was just powerful, ingenuous, uh, credible. And I think that uh, the White House uh, and, uh, and the team Kavanaugh and uh, the leader and so on saw that. And I think that they did... They, they went to plan B, which is we're going to go totally tribal here, and we can't go after her, so we're going to make this all about the process and the Democrats, and we're going to make it impossible, we're going to make it disloyal for Republicans not to support this nominee, because not to support this nominee would be to affirm what these slimy Democrats have done, and Lindsey Graham took the point on that with his um, theatricality, and... Um, uh, and, and, you know, it looked, and it still may be true, uh, that they were successful in that. And, but for a chance encounter at an elevator in the Senate today, uh, we might well be on the eve of uh, a series of votes that, that would seat Kavanaugh. These, those are, are at least going to be attenuated now while the FBI looks at this. Let's talk about that chance encounter. He's talking about, for those of you... Probably everybody in this room knows about it, but it was uh, Senator Flake getting on the elevator in the Capitol, and a few women, um, before he closed the door, started telling their stories of what has happened to them. And what I'm interested in is whether that was an example of democracy in action. Yeah. And, and what that says, whether it's any redemption today because of that. Yeah, well, I or, think it does speak to... Uh, it speaks to one of the great virtues of democracy because there was a powerful person who was confronted by um, a citizen who had her own story to tell and who was, and, but I mean, I'm not sure how it would have worked out if the world hadn't seen it. It was live on television mm -hmm. and uh, Flake's discomfort was manifest. 
I, I mean, I, I think he was genuinely impacted by uh, her story. But there is something about that that is really, really inspiring that uh, I don't know the woman's name. I think she's probably, it's probably well known by now. Mm -hmm. But um, she played a heroic and historic role here. Just an average citizen confronting someone in power who had the ability to uh, at least uh, lay down in front of the train track and slow it down. Well, and I think there were two women. Yeah, there were two of them. There were two women, yeah, actually, two who, who asserted and reasserted, hear my voice, and here we deserve to be heard, and if you carry on and just vote through, we will know that we've just done a play acting, that you didn't hear us. Right. And I think that's exactly what was intended. Right. There was a box-checking uh, character to what was done yesterday, the notion, I mean, the fact that they had scheduled the vote uh, in advance of the hearing tells you everything you need to yes. know, which is, okay, we'll hear her, yes. we'll hear her out, and then we'll vote. Yeah. And she insisted that he look her in the eye. Yes. W one and, of the things, you know, one, yeah. of the, one of the things that I find interesting is that this was a very high-profile example. Um, but it's hardly the only example of what we have seen over the last, you know, 20 months, mm -hmm. which is um, women in particular who were never particularly active politically. They may have voted with some regularity, um, but they had not fully engaged in the political process. And something happened. We know what happened. I mean, the, when, when, when Trump was elected, um, it was such a searing moment um, I've been doing some reporting in a couple of places with talking to suburban women and the stories that you hear about people who say, I was not active, I am now active, I am doing things that I have never done. Some are running for office, a lot of them are canvassing, they're, you know, they're protesting outside of congressional offices, they're doing all kinds of things. I mean, what we saw today was, you know, in a sense, one of the most forceful examples of it, but there are tens of thousands yeah. of those and, examples all over the country. You know, there, but there are some women I'm wondering how, how they will, if they will move and change. When Donald Trump referred to women were with me, he was referring to the 52% or something of white, uh, women, white women, right? <clears throat> that, and the two days after the election, uh, his election, I was in a meeting with a man who is a leader in the Republican Party in this state, um, who wanted to explain, as we were all still sort of awestruck by this event in our lives, he said, you need to understand, my wife and many of the women, and this was up in north central Wisconsin, have been actively campaigning for um, Trump. They called themselves a posse. They were in their mid-40s to mid-50s, so this is a group. And I said, what motivated them? And he said, because they are concerned about the emasculation of young men today. <laughs> no, this is serious. And he said, I have heard it from other Republican, white, we can presume, women. So I'm really anxious to see if, if the, the violence, in some sense, of the Trump administration that is felt by women accrues and and affects those women. Well, I mean, I've had conversations with, with women who are, 
who voted for Trump and are strong supporters of Trump. Uh, and one sent me an email after I wrote something about the gender gap. And there's no question that the gender gap is bigger than it's ever been. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, and, and, but she said, in essence, Barack Obama is the kind of person that you would want for a husband, a father, a brother, etc. A wonderful person. I disagreed with the way he was moving the country. And then she wrote, there's almost nothing about Donald Trump personally that is admirable. But whether it's her position on Supreme Court justices or tax cuts or a conservative agenda, her view was that I can put aside those aspects of Trump's personal behavior because I think he's moving the country. Yeah. Those women are still with, with him at this point. Uh, yeah. Um, relative to the hearing... Uh, Barbara, you described your reaction, and I think you got a great deal of affirmation in this room about not just how you reacted to uh, her, but how you reacted to him. But I'm eager to see, and, and I'm sure there'll be some research pretty quickly, about how generally this was received, because my sense was by, by tribalizing the event, um, the Republicans hope to, and I think they may have succeeded to some degree in turning this into kind of the, the, this kind of Rorschach test that we've seen, uh, you know, so often in the Trump years where, you know, people just see things much differently. I don't think that they, I don't think many people will discredit her, but you hear a lot, but, you know, I've heard speaking, just speaking to me, well, you know, they both were compelling. You know, they both believe what they believe. I mean, someone is not telling the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but so I, I just, you know, we are so, so polarized that we view events uh, in, through an entirely different lens. Even something like the hearing yesterday, I'll be, eager, I'll be eager to see how it... But I just want to make one other point because uh, on this issue of... Um, that the confrontation at the elevator, mm -hmm. your point, Dan. Um, the, I do think, I tend to the, uh, the optimistic side. You're the believer. Yes, I'm a believer. <laughs> uh, hard as that can be at times these days. But um, I think one of the things that gives me hope, I mean, I was there at the inauguration for CNN, and I went out on the streets the day after at the marches. Some of you may have been there. I was struck, I expected a great deal of anger and what I saw was determination and a yearning for community, and uh, that. Ha and I and I asked myself, and I asked them, well, will this translate into uh, political action, candidacies, you know, activism, and so on? I mean, the answer we've seen so far has yes. been yes. Yeah. And so, to the extent that uh, Trump's election has spurred this new sense of activism and, and engagement, uh, that's a positive thing. And we'll know in 40-something days what it produces. Uh, but I think it's real. To close that out, you know, I started with uh, quoting Dan Balls. And um, Dan is sort of uh, my idea of the rational mind at work. Um, and so... A little out of date on you. <laughs> um, and there's another writer at the Washington Post who, um, I, whatever she writes, I read. 
just like mm -hmm. when Dan writes, and that's Alexandra Petri, who grew up in uh, the prep schools of Washington, but many of you might know has a Wisconsin roots. She's the daughter of the former Congressman Thomas Petri, um, and she probably has the most uh, brilliant, creative, satirical voice in America today, I would say. Um, and usually, I mean, sometimes I'm reading her and I'm laughing out loud at the computer when I'm, when I'm reading her. But she wrote something today that didn't make me laugh, but made my heart pound louder. And I, I wished that Alexandra could have been here tonight, but she's not, so excuse me for, for reading a little bit of her. She said, women are used to squinting to see our own stories in the stories of others, to reading ourselves into the words all men are created equal, to being the thing tied to the tracks to raise the stakes. She was talking then about Dr. Ford describing seeing a train coming at her. I am so tired of the moment when you discover how little your weight counts against the train's weight. I want us to be the train and not the thing thrown under it. I want us to be the thing too urgent to be stopped, not the thing that must curl up apologetically to make room for it. I'm so tired of watching us jump. I'm so tired of watching the trains keep going. And I think that there's a lot of that feeling that is being expressed in this coming election. Yeah. I'm curious what each of you think is is going to happen in this midterm election. Uh, every, almost every uh, time this happens, people say it's the most important election uh, in recent memory. It's usually total BS. Um, they, it's the politicians who are saying that. Um, it's hyperbole, but I think I've joined the hyperbolic this time and think this perhaps is the most important midterm we've faced in a long time. You want think? me to start with yes. it? Yes. <clears throat> I don't disagree with that. I mean, I, I, I mean, I think the stakes of this midterm election are enormous. Um, you know, if the Democrats are able to win the House, and, and in a sense, um, you, you would almost have to say if they can't win the House in this environment, then there's going to be a lot of hand-wringing on November 7th. Hand-wringing, I think, would be well, would, mild. Well, I think... <laughs> Uh, I think that uh, it's going to be... I'm, I'm trying to be the, the rational. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Let me speak as an emotional person. Yeah. It's going to be devastating. Yeah. Um, if, that were, if that happens, the next two years of the Trump presidency are fundamentally different than the first two, first two years of the presidency. Um, Democrats will do everything they can, as they've tried to do without power, uh, to stop him. There will be investigations, there will be subpoenas, there will be a roadblock on anything that the Republicans want to try to do. Um, but it will also start us, will start the clock running immediately on the 2020 election. And I think that the focus will be on, within the House of Representatives, the question of whether there will be impeachment proceedings or not. And that's a serious debate that Democrats will go through and there's not a consensus on that. Uh, and outside it will be a search for who is capable of taking on Donald Trump to lead the Democratic Party in 2020. And then there will be the question of how President Trump reacts to being boxed in in a way he hasn't been. <laughs> With equanimity, I'm sure. Yes. 
<laughs> and 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 the elephant in a room, which is the Mueller investigation, which at some point will, mm -hmm. he will deliver a report, um, which will be greeted, you know, in a highly partisan environment, and yet it it is likely to have real force. Barbara, what uh, effect did the last year of woman women have on you back more than twenty years ago, and do you see that coming again? Do you mean the year of the woman? And, yes, yes. Um, I do, actually. Of course, we've seen numbers, and I wish I had the numbers on the tip of my tongue, of how many women are running for office this year, but also organizing in different ways. And I'm, I think of because of how gerrymandering has made so many seats simply not competitive, um, and when I think about it from the state of Wisconsin, there's not a lot to think about. Um, we have some interesting races, but a lot of them are set. But if I think about the midterms being supported from local and statewide races, we have a really exciting, um, th I think, have exciting things on the horizon here. And a lot of it is, is being fed by women who are fed up and, um, and young people who mm -hmm. are tired of the gridlock and step aside and let us come in and, and show you how to do it, and tired of the Democrats' difficulty if, um, in finding a message and a way to really speak to their constituents. And that's why my hope for congressional races actually starts with the activity and the organizing that is done very locally and for local offices and then is bubbling up right to the top now on our statewide ticket, that there are people who have a lot more courage than an organized Democratic Party has and I think will resonate. I've not heard of an organized Democratic Party. But <laughs> You're right. I'm glad to hear that there is one. We'll it's that <laughs> circular Navy shooting at each other, that one. Yeah. yeah, but I, you know, I, it does raise this issue because um, we tend to, you know, we tend to generalize from whatever the last big event was, and you know, there've been, there's been the emergence of some very exciting progressive candidates like uh, uh, Alexandra uh, Ocasio Cortez in New York, and um, you know, uh, Gillum in Florida, and and. and uh, uh, in Georgia, uh, and Stacey and Abrams, Stacey yeah. Abrams, and uh, um, you know, in Cambridge uh, uh, recently, but uh, it's also true that we're a big, diverse country, and um, the races that they ran wouldn't necessarily have elected Connor Lamb in Pennsylvania or uh, Jones in Alabama or. And um, the challenge, I think, is to find uh, some universal themes that, uh, that Democrats broadly uh, can embrace and run on. And I think that uh, around issues of, uh, of uh, health care and um, uh, what to do about uh, income inequality and the these fundamental changes in our economy and so there are things that democrats broadly share they may differ in uh how to approach them or uh you know what methods to to embrace but i i think this notion that democrats are a badly divided party that you know i i you know i'm 
I don't feel that way. I don't feel that they're divided. I think they are floundering or have floundered for a message. And one of the important parts of this election is that there is a potential for the biggest block of voters to be millennials, more than baby yeah. boomers in you know, my generation. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you about, because and the young people are always sort of the wild card of right. elections for Democrats. You've been dealing this forever. No better group than and, us to talk about that. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Um, Barbara, you work on a millennial project. I, I'm on Dan and, and David both uh, deal with, with right. young people all the time at yes. Chicago and yes, Harvard. Yeah. Is this year going to be different? Do you see uh, a change? Well, I'll tell in, you what, I, I was with, uh, uh, I, yesterday was the beginning. We, we were on a quarter system, so we began our, uh, the freshmen came in this week, and it was orientation week, and we had what we call politapalooza. Uh, at the Institute of Politics, and I did a little session with Governor Bullock from Montana, um, and we, as part of this, and um, it was outdoors behind the Institute of Politics, 600 kids showed up, and um, we're very much pushing voter registration and mobilization, and the interest was just uh, extraordinary. Um, and so we'll see. I mean, there's early, Harvard does these millennial polls. I think there are indications in these polls that there's greater interest uh, this year. You, you're probably more fluent in them than I am. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I think there is the potential for that, but, um, you know, we've kind of sensed that in the past, and often it doesn't really come to pass, and I think that um, it's hard to know whether you will get... Young, the youngest contingent, to take that extra step, which is to actually go and vote. I mean, the efforts to register are, are paying some dividends, um, but um, I've, I've been out in Colorado off and on over the last several months. They vote by mail in that state. Here's a problem for young voters. They're not used to sending no, letters. They don't know where they, stamps. No, I mean this is. Right. Uh, it sounds no, kind of hilarious. This is, this is, no, you're but right. This is a we, serious problem. Can you my my executive app? director said to me yesterday, we just had a big breakthrough. We were authorized to buy stamps. Right. Because <laughs> the kids keep coming and saying, "Well, where do I get stamps?" But there's, right. an, there's what another. What is a stamp? This is a University of Chicago, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the University of Wisconsin. There's right. another challenge to this too: is that the candidates need to actually speak to them. Mm. And we, you know, I've I've have had um, young people who call and say, "Well, we were going to work for this candidate. Just got together with that candidate mm. and." gave us the talking points, and they had nothing to do with our lives, our interests, or even the event that we were there. And this is when candidates can't get enough off message to speak to the day and speak to their audience. If we speak to, it's as if they need an invitation in to be empowered to take part in this. Can I pick up on that point? Because uh, I think it's, it's, it's right at the core of the issue of the future of the Democratic Party. Right. Um, I, I tend to agree that the Democrats are not as badly divided ideologically as is sometimes suggested. Um, there are differences. There's clearly some people who say Medicare for all and others who say, well, let's do universal care and figure out how to get as far as we can. But I think that there are some very important divisions that the Democrats have got to work out. Um, one is the generational question. Right. I mean, you have this bottleneck of people who are actually older than we are, yes. uh, which, which means quite old, um, who, are, who are in a sense suppressing 
a younger generation from rising mm -hmm. up to take over right. the party. I think the other point yeah. that you made, which is that there is, there is an enormous amount of progressive action at the grassroots among people who don't particularly identify with the Democratic right. Party. They, they may agree with Democrats on a number of the issues, but they don't feel a part of that. Um, and the third piece of that is the, the rising significance of women, and particularly college-educated women, within the Democratic coalition. Um, Anna Greenberg is a, is a Democratic pollster, and I talked to her about this a month or so ago, and she said, I don't think we're so much a party divided, but we are a party in flux. Uh, and the Democrats are gonna have to figure out how to take in a different group of people and, and not just right. not just get their votes, no, but give them but power. There is an interesting phenomenon that just happened up in Door County huh. where um, for the spring elections, a group of young millennial women started to organize, recruit candidates, and really engage the community in a nonpartisan fashion over some really important issues that define their lives up there. So they were really building community around issues, elected a progressive majority to the city council in Sturgeon Bay, and then there was a special election called for the state senate seat up there that had been held by a Republican since the 70s. And they took all of that and a sense of community around issues and could turn it behind him, even people who hadn't necessarily thought of themselves as Democrats, and won, and won big, and overperformed for that area in a huge way. And, um, and now they're working toward the next spring election, building community now that is going to be reflected in the fall election. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think there's a lot of that going on around the country. My observation of young people is that um, they hunger for an authentic politics, yes. a politics of meaning. The old cliches really ring hollow. And if you look at the candidates who have been really successful in capturing the imagination of young people, it's like Beto O'Rourke in Texas, who's running a very organic uh, campaign. And, uh, and Abrams and Gillum and uh, 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 Ocasio-Cortez and uh, uh, candidates like that um, who, who seem real and seem connected with their communities and seem to want to do big things and not simply um, uh, incremental uh, things. And I, you know, so... I think that um, that is a clash, I mean, a clash of styles. And I think one of the failures in 2016 was uh, to communicate that kind of authentic, authentic message to young people who, frankly, didn't vote. You know, um, in this case, I'm a believer, too. <laughs> All right. Um, I, I teach at Vanderbilt every other year, and the last few classes I've had, I've seen it a commitment uh, toward politics on the part of the students that I hadn't seen before. And I, I really a sort of, uh, I'm a believer in this generation to make change. And I think that, that it goes down to the high school level and what the Parkland students did um, was an enormous burst yeah. of energy for the, for the whole country. And, and so I, I'm curious whether, I mean, this is just a technical question, but are the polls sophisticated enough to pick up on, on whether oh, these... 
these students are going to vote through, you know, because you can't pull them through landlines. No, well, no, but I mean, I mean, there's a lot of, we, we do landlines and, and cell, phones. cell phones. I mean, the bigger and problem is the, is just the degree to which the entire the, polling industry yeah. well, is, is And troubled. they don't answer the phone anymore. They text. Yeah, yes. So yeah. can you poll by text? Uh, well, there are the, do. there are <laughs> online polling. Yeah. Poll on Snapchat. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it just it is echo, hard. To, it is hard. To, yeah. It is hard to know. To echo your point, though, I mean, I, I'm I go home inspired every day and hopeful every day because of these young people who, I mean, the challenge is they want to change the world. They mm -hmm. want to make a difference. Mm -hmm. um, they it is. You know, it, it is um, our job, and it's not always an easy job, to persuade them that politics is necessarily the way to do it. You know, they'll say, well, let's start an app, let's create, you know, let's do something on s social media, which is very, very powerful. But, uh, you know, Congress is going to meet with them or without them, and state legislatures and city councils and so on, and they're going to make decisions that very much affect the equities. And so I'm having these conversations all the time, but it's an easier conversation to have. Now, I, I don't hear nearly as much, you know, ele uh, that elections don't really matter. Right. No, but it's also not such a savory thing to contemplate running for office anymore as well. The vulner level of vulner personal I don't know, Barbara, I've never run. I'll have to take your word for I it. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a very different thing to put your own neck no, I know. instead of someone else's, right? Um, <laughs> wow. But I, the other thing is Don't that, think I didn't know that. <laughs> the other thing, though, is that there are too many people in my generation who, um, who don't want to step aside, who don't want to make space. We need to have younger people with a high look, you know. They're speaking of trains. For me, the future comes at me like a steaming train. Mm -hmm. But for them, they have a high arcing view of the future, mm -hmm. and that perspective really needs to be reflected in decision-making at the highest levels. Mm -hmm. Well, David, you started your wonderful Axe Files exactly three years ago tonight with an interview with Bernie Sanders. Yes. And among speaking the things of, he was able to do was the youthful future of the Democratic right. Party. <laughs> Well, there's the paradox, yeah. yes. right? He was the oldest, he, if he runs again, he'll be the oldest candidate. And yet he did inspire kids to a yeah. degree that the other candidates did not. But maybe this time it's time for him to step aside for some of the Although, younger. Although, maybe so. I, I'll, I'll address that in a second. Yeah. But I do remember at the end of that podcast, I said to him, you know, I've got 2,000 kids waiting to hear from you. We, we, we did this podcast in, a, in an RV from the airport to the University of Chicago. We picked uh -huh. him up. And, um, and uh, I said, you're, you're kind of an unlikely rock star. <laughs> and, um, and he said, uh, just don't talk to me about those selfies. I, I can't stand <laughs> those selfies. <laughs> but um, I think he learned to like them. <laughs> I think he, I think he captured the imagination of young people in part because he is authentic. I mean, mm. Bernie Sanders has been saying the same thing mm. for 50 years. And he believes in those things, and those things have currency. Some of those things have currency, and I think he also benefited from 
he was running against Hillary Clinton, who, they, who many young people viewed as an establishment candidate and part of the status quo, and he took advantage of that. I don't know that he can replicate that again. Mm -hmm. And now there are other people who are competing for that base in different ways. Elizabeth Warren, it seems to me, is, 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 is likely to run. Uh, Speaking so, of the youth of the party. Yeah. Well, she's younger than Bernie. Um, but so no, but I mean, but, but there are younger... But younger than, than Biden? Uh, younger than... Yeah. Yes. Than Mike Bloomberg. Um, but, uh, but she... Quite a future the Democrats have. <laughs> yes. We're awash in octogenarians. Uh, but um, but uh, there are other candidates... Um, you know, who also, I think, will have a claim to that. You know, the Cory Bookers and the... Kamala Harris. Kamala, Kamala, Kamala Harris. Harris and, um, you know, so I think it's going to be very interesting. I think it's a, it's, it's a, it's, it, it's not obvious to me how this is going to unfold. Yeah. You know, I think there's another thing about, about why Bernie Sanders connected. I mean, I, I agree completely with what you said about that sort of authenticity and that he believes in it. But also, he was talking about big things. Yes. Um, this was, and, and, you know, some people dismissed it as unrealistic. And yet, you know, people want to believe that big things should and can be done in this country. Um, and, you know, in a sense, it's, it's, it's left to others to try to figure out how to make that happen mm -hmm. in the end. But somebody has to inspire people to want to do it. And I think that that was well, part of the reason he was successful. And those young people know that if you don't have a vision, you'll never get there. And the incremental politics that people think are essential to getting elected and staying in office have done nothing for this country, really. <laughs> I'm going to close out the, uh, the millennial old age versus young people <laughs> section with uh, uh, my belief in the banana which is, uh, my wife came home the other day and said, I was walking down, well, probably Becky Blank knows this too. She said, I was walking through the campus and a banana came up to me. Uh, uh, and it was a kid who's out there registering voters. And as a banana? As a banana. So the bananas are gonna vote. Okay. <laughs> Sounds very appealing. So. Oh. <laughs> See, that is not a joke that younger people would appreciate. That is we, we a forget, bad we joke. We forget that Axelrod started yeah. out as a writer. <laughs> <laughs>
Is What do you think about that? And is that the right way to approach it? Or why are Republicans approaching it directly? Well, uh, first of all, uh, let me say the whole thing, having worked in the White House, is unthinkable. I mean, it is uh, the notion that you'd have people kind of plotting to save the president from himself and stealing stuff off his desk. Well, I guess, uh, you know, it, it's just, it, it speaks to um, this, the uniqueness of the situation that we're, <laughs> that we're in. Um, but, uh, uh, and I don't know, I mean, the, the, you know, I was asked about this and I said only half jokingly that it would be like murder on the Orient Express trying to find uh, <laughs> anonymous. And it may be that there were like a dozen people. Does everybody people. get that? <laughs> okay. It may be that there was like, there were like a dozen people each writing one line of that. Um, you know, because yeah. apparently it takes a village to protect <laughs> the president from himself. So, um, but it is a, um, it is an appalling state when you have people conspiring. Now, I will say, I have no idea, I would, I was offended in certain ways that someone would write the piece because um, you should either declare, mm -hmm. declare yourself and leave, um, and, and what is the purpose of writing a piece and saying we're there, you know, to keep him from going nuts when you know the piece itself is going to drive him nuts? I mean, and it, to me it was sort of self-serving and maybe a way of explaining to people, uh, you know, uh, why those who stay, stay so that they can still travel in polite company. Dan, you must deal with various anonymouses or people in the administration every day or every week who express some levels of, various levels of frustration over him. Why do you think it's uh, persisting? Well, I, I think there is, on the part of a lot of people who go into government, a, a combination of sort of motivations. Um, one is a dedication to the country and a desire to serve the country. Um, and I think that that's a genuine feeling that people have. And I think that um, there are a lot of Republicans who have had to think very long and hard about whether they wanted to work for this administration. And many have chosen not to, but some have chosen to do so uh, for what I think they believe are the best of reasons, which is that, you know, good people need to serve. This, this, this is, there is one president, but it's a big government and you need those people. Uh, there's certainly uh, a personal motivation on the part of people who are at a certain level in their, or a certain point in their career where they know that the value of having served in a responsible position in a, in a presidential administration. Even in an irresponsible administration. Even in, even in an irresponsible administration. Uh, that there is that there is personal value in that. Um, I think that what Mr. or Ms. Anonymous was saying is also part of it, which is uh, there are, there are aspects about this president uh, that we feel the need to contain him, and yet there are other things that are being done as a result of him being in office that they believe in. Um, but I think it's a, it, I mean it, it it is a terribly conflicting time. Um, and I think that you, you, have to, you have to know that there are a lot of people within the government who see the president in the same way that people outside of the government see him, uh, as volatile, as, as often irresponsible, uh, as somebody who flies off the handle. 
um, and yet they are, you know, they are kind of working through that. So um, I, I have no idea who this person was who wrote it. Um, I, I only hope that it was, in fact, truly a very senior administration official. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I don't think the, there was a justification in, in publishing it. But um, Do you, you think know, the Washington Post would have published it? I've said no. I think but, we probably would not have. That's yeah. my guess. Yeah. 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 And Barbara, did you ever write such a letter to the Capital <laughs> Times when, when Jim Doyle was governor? <laughs> no. <laughs> Just kidding, everybody. <laughs> no, but when you and when I think about it, and we, I don't see any signs of real. Um, all we see is chaos coming out of the White House, and no real competence in in important ways. Um, and so I think, really, serving this administration is is just going to be a sign of your um, incompetence and willingness to comp compromise your integrity at that level. I mean, it it's so bungled. Everything. You know, I, I just I guess you know the fact that Mattis is over there. Uh, we had differences. Uh, the the Obama administration had differences with him, but um, it strikes me that he is a responsible person, right. um, having someone in that position, given the proclivities of this president, that seems pretty important. I can't imagine that he's having a great time. No. I think he's hanging he's around for the for laughs. World, yeah. I mean, I think he's staying there because he thinks he has a responsibility to the country. I, I, I'm not going to denigrate that. No, no. I didn't mean cabinet members per se, although we could put some in that category. I was looking at the the support that should have things um, support the president's action or or anything coming out of the White House has not been competent. Yeah. I don't think any of us have a complete, I mean, there are a lot of books being written. I'm not sure anybody can actually capture the experience of what it must be like to uh, work with this guy on a yeah. daily basis right. in that White House. It's, it's a constant series of surprises for people who mm -hmm. work very closely in the White House. Um, now, I mean, I'm, I'm not on the front line of our coverage of the White House. Our, our White House team is. Um, and they have been reporting from day one of the shock and the surprise and, and you know, this... Scrambling. This scrambling, yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, people waking up and seeing a tweet, mm -hmm. you know, Secretary mm -hmm. of State being dismissed by a tweet, um, a change in in Pentagon procedure having to do with transgender by tweet. Uh, none of this prepared. None of this, you know, nobody was warned about this. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's an enormously difficult thing to, to live under those circumstances. Um, and there are, I mean, there are in throughout the government um, still a lot of very good people um, who are working in that environment. Um, but the president is the president, and everybody everybody has presumably a, a level of patience or not that will keep them there only so long. And then, as we've seen, this, there's been tremendous turnover in this administration. And I expect that after this midterm, I, that will there will be a real emptying out. I, I agree. Every White House leaks. Yours did, although not as much. I mean, no, no White House said... That Dan or I have ever encountered leaks as much as this one. Would you agree? I mean, it's just like oh yeah, I, Ashley and Costa and everybody get fourteen sources on their stories. Well, but you need fourteen. 
Uh, you know, but you need 14 sources because no uh, you can't get three people to agree on what the story <laughs> is, right? Uh, uh, you know, there, there, are, there are disciplined White Houses or disciplined organizations that we've all covered, uh, and you can, you know, with a relatively few number of telephone calls, you can get the story of what happened, you know, at a particular moment. But with this, and, and I, I, I think even more so in the first year of the administration, I think it's, you know, this, this, you may not believe this, but I think it's settled down a little bit in some ways. But um, there was so much infighting uh, and so much backbiting that when, when our people would call somebody to try to find out what happened, it was not just getting the story of what happened. Somebody wanted to take a shot at somebody else. Yeah. And so, you know, that... That was that was part of the reality of it. These these fiercely opposed camps around the president, all fighting in one way or another to become the supreme in the White House. That is that is not un, those kinds of uh, rivalries within a White House are not uncommon. I mean, not to that degree, because usually there's a there's there's pretty much cohesion within an administration. Um, I mean, but. The thing that makes the leaks out of this White House unusual is so many of them are about the president himself. They're not one person trying to take another person out. So many of them are about his own behavior, his own, uh, you know, erratic uh, nature and so on. And that is what I find astonishing is just how freely people are willing to talk about, um, you know, what a freak show it is. I want to turn to a, to another major subject. You know, I'd say there are three enormous social movements that have changed America over the last 50 years. Um, one is women's rights, another is gay rights, and the third is civil rights. And I've always believed that, that race is the American dilemma and has been from the beginning and still is. And I know, Dan, that you wrote recently about a a very interesting political science report about the 2016 election, um, which argued that it wasn't so much the economics as the cultural identification, which to a large degree means race. Can you talk about that? And then we can all discuss. Yeah, this is a book that's coming out um, in a couple of weeks by three political scientists, John Sides, who's at George Washington University, Lynn Vavrick, who's at UCLA, and, uh, and uh, Michael Tesler, who is at UC, I believe it's Irvine. Um, and John and, and Lynn did a book on the 2012 campaign, which was, a, which was a political scientist's attempt to parse through the kinds of things that Axe has done as a strategist and that I've done as a reporter on campaigns, uh, and to go to fundamentals. Um, and what they did in this new book, um, and I, the piece I wrote was about a chapter that was said, the title was, What Happened? Mm -hmm. um, and what they concluded was that when you cut through everything that was going on and all of the descriptions of why Trump ultimately got elected, um, and there are obviously a thousand reasons, right. but, but what they concluded was that it was identity issues and particularly racial issues and racial attitudes that had the biggest impact on the Trump coalition. Not that every Trump voter or even a, you know, a high percentage are outright racist, but that attitudes about race 
trumped attitudes about economic anxiety. Mm -hmm. And what they said was that, um, that they, they came up with a phrase of, of racialized economics as opposed to economic anxiety being a driving factor uh, in what separated people who voted for Trump as opposed to those who didn't. It's a very, it's a very, I mean, I, it, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a scholarly work. It's not, you know, it's not popular writing, yeah. but it's a very powerful analysis of what happened. Yeah. There's an interesting essay that came out a year or so ago titled On Being Midwestern, The Burden of Normality. I think I shared it with you. Yes. And it was, it's a really important look at taking a look at Midwestern states and how we were America's foundry and its breadbasket and in times of war its armory. We were settled by immigrants who grew things and made things as farmers and, and entrepreneurs. We laid out our state in a grid so you weren't more than two miles away from your school or a as he put it, a tank of gas from a college, and really that's the way it was. And there was a sense of this is the American story, and this is normal. And in that sense, it's white, right? And, and so there, um, the change or challenge of changing populations to that, there's been a tremendous resistance even as a kind of... It, um, that would betray the movement following abolition. They ignore that. This is still what Midwestern is. And the, there's inherent in that the violence of settling what was already settled. We have 11 Native American tribes here. But it's still this deep-rooted sense that this is, um, this is the way it should be, and we don't want to be challenged. But you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Race has coursed through our politics uh, from the beginning, the original sin, yep. and we've never recovered from it. Um, but I think it's important to note that um, we're not the only democracy that's going through these wrenching things. And, um, you know, you look at um, Europe, for example, mm -hmm. and you look at the Brexit vote mm -hmm. and the leave mm -hmm. vote on Brexit. I know Dan's done reporting over there. And you overlay it on the Trump vote here. And there are a lot of similarities. And of course, the mm -hmm. migration issue yep. it, there is uh, part of the animating force. But so, is, so are the economic issues. I mean, there is a sense of aggrievement about what has been lost, lost, lost place, uh, but also economic loss. And I think these are they're intermingled, the cultural and the, um, and the economic. And um, so uh, maybe that's a good way to put it, uh, as they uh, termed it. But I, I wouldn't be dismissive. I mean, you know, we, I, I spoke earlier and you were there. I, I think we live in revolutionary times and technology and globalization um, and the migrations of people have... Uh, created uh, an enormous, uh, uh, has created enormous change. Uh, and I, I think it's coming faster than we can get our arms around. The way we communicate uh, mm -hmm. exacerbates these tensions. Um, these, these are great challenges for, for, uh, for all democracies uh, and our democracy. Another major issue that, that all three of you have 
either dealt with or written about is dark money. I know Barbara, it's it's probably the issue at the at at the core of what you've dealt with. And of course, David has been dealing with money forever and Dan's been writing about it. I'm I'm wondering where we are in that whole place. You know, I mean, because in some ways it seems that money is having less effect now, but in some ways it seems like it's done. I I go back and forth on that. And, and I, know, I mean, obviously, you know, since Citizens United, dark money has had an enormous impact. And yet you see sometimes now where people can break through that. So where are you on that? And, and do you think we'll, we'll ever get to the reforms that, that I don't know. A major campaign, national campaign reform group just announced that they were um, becoming much smaller and, and maybe right. folding. But part of the reason was that there have been so many other movements and organizations around the issue of money and politics that have sprung up and that are more local. Mm. And what is, I don't know, be, I mean, it is something since the first time I ran for office and said, whoa, I'm never doing that again. I'm, um, because it is so diminishing to your soul to beg for money. And it then when you get closer to the underbelly of our system, you can see how it skews policy and how it fundamentally keeps us in inter incremental politics instead of the bold things that we ought to be doing. What has been interesting to me of late is that, for instance, in Wisconsin, 131, something like that, local municipalities or county um, organizations have had advisory referendum on the ballot that have argued to support the um, overturning Citizens United, which is not, in, you know, if you've mm -hmm. studied this stuff, it's not the whole answer. But it, it was a way to poll people about how they felt. And interestingly, even in the last gubernatorial election, it was on the ballot in Brown County, Green Bay, where Scott Walker had already won re election and re-election, or won a, a recall. So it's on his re-elect ballot. He won handily, as he had the other times, and 75% of the people voted to overturn Citizens United, as they mm. have in Waukesha mm -hmm. County and Walworth and all of these red places. I don't hear a single candidate speak to this issue, really, not in a profound way because they don't believe that it matters, and yet it really does. And I've counseled candidates, really, you want to get independence and pull people together? This is a very strong, um, uh, people understand how serious this is, but they don't know what can be done. And there, there are bills before Congress. Um, I won't work with anyone who's not going to lead on that. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I spoke earlier about uh, Beto O'Rourke. Right, he's doing uh, that. He's, he's raised an enormous amount of money, mostly in small contributions yeah. online. And one of the things about the internet is it is a democratizing force in terms of fundraising. It does, you know, it's, it's the, I'm not in any way minimizing the impact of money in politics. It is profound and the dark money piece of it is getting worse. Mm -hmm. but, um, but there is this other side of it. We, you know, what, what you see with Democratic candidates across the country now is that, and it's unusual, but they're, they're better funded in many cases than their opponents because there is this mobilization that we talked about earlier, and it's reflecting itself 
in campaign contributions and small donations right. coming online. Um, so that is one offset that is encouraging. Uh, we also ought to point out that Donald Trump spent less than the others uh, in his campaign. So all you right. have to do is become host of Celebrity Apprentice, <laughs> and you can overcome these things. I don't know of an issue that is probably more uniting in this country mm -hmm. than the view that money in politics is a corrupting influence. Right. Um, everywhere you go, every person you talk to, uh, every survey you look at, every focus group you sit in on and, 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 and listen to people, no matter where it is, no matter kind of what the particular ideological stance or political identification people have, they hate the idea of too much money in politics. Now, there's no easy way to, to solve that. No. Every, every effort at campaign finance reform creates some other avenue right. in which the money continues no, to pour in. But the small donor match public funding has worked well where they've been able to get it through. But it died, it died at the federal level. Yes, of um, course. But I, mean, but, but I think <clears throat> David's right. I, I, I heard a Republican uh, the other day talking about 2020, and he said that he believes that in 2020, uh, the big, uh, the big donors, the big bundlers are going to have much less impact than they have had in the past for the very reason that David is talking about, that there is, mm -hmm. that there is now a way for individuals to, to give money to candidates they like and to, and, and to give no matter where they are. I met a woman in, in, uh, the suburbs of Colorado, uh, in August and, um, she's a doctor. And so she said, I have some money. Uh, and she said, this time, which I've never done before, any candidate anywhere who I like, I send a small check to. Um, and this is happening in all kinds of places. So the, the ability to fundraise and, and finance a campaign without the big money is now possible. Which is fine for Beto O'Rourke or Alexandra. But it's if you're Beto, running, by the way. If you're, Beto, <laughs> if you're running here for assembly, state senate, state treasurer, attorney general, or governor, it's not. It's difficult to light those I, fires. But you know, it's I not think one happen. of the things that I think there is a greater awareness of that, and you see organizations growing up, uh, including the one that Holder's running. Uh, with the president, that are raising money for legislative candidates, for down, down ballot candidates that are getting contributions and then distributing money that way. So, there, you know, I mean, I don't want to, again, I, I mean, having spent the time that I spent in Washington and having been around politics for a very long time, it is, it is appalling um, how much time people have to spend uh, raising money and how responsive people feel they need to be to... Well, your guy was exactly. kind of a mixed bag on that, wasn't he? I mean, in one sense, he, he, he got enormous amount of small donations. In another sense, he rejected public financing. Yes. Yeah. And Was that a debate at all, or is that just a question of... It was, you know, there was, a, there was a... Basically, there was a fear of being overrun by independent expenditures and third-party donors um, and that we had to, you know, we saw uh, in 2004 John Kerry um, lived within the system and died within the system because he took such incoming during the summer of 2004 from the Swift Boat Veterans for Truth and so on and we just didn't want to be 
in we didn't want right. to be swift boated right. um, and so that was really there, there wasn't that much of a discussion mm. we were informed by squalid history you know the trump example as david said is is one where it, it it's a reminder that at the presidential level mm -hmm. um you know money alone is no longer the coin of the realm necessarily but in a lot of these state races yep. um what we're seeing this year is in state legislative races that outside money coming in in places where individual candidates right. have trouble raising it right. and the outside money can can swamp it. I think it's more difficult to do that at the national level. It's, you know, one thing on this presidential thing, just as an aside, um, I, I can't think of an ad that actually swayed a presidential election that aired after Labor Day because the coverage of these campaigns is so intense that people basically default to what they see on on you know in all these news outlets and so on i mean they're watching the campaign in real time and so these ads become less effective but lower down on the ballot they they're more impactful you know even here in wisconsin the the uh, the money being spent against tammy baldwin and the television and radio ads that have been running for a long time um you know, it's dark money at its darkest, and yet it's not necessarily moving the yeah. polls against yeah. her, which I find really interesting. And yeah. she's had a great comment about her. Yeah. She's been, she has been too smart in office and served too well to be taken down that easily. <laughs> it's, also, it, it's also true that this is... Um, this is a propitious time, I think, even in a, in a, in a red state or a purple state or a, mm. to, uh, to, be a to be a Democrat, yeah. you yeah. know. I mean, this is not, not going to be a welcoming time for Republicans. It's such a, a, a paradox, isn't it, that if Hillary had won, all of these candidates would be toast, yeah. including probably Tammy. You know, you know, it's just the way the up and down of this goes. Yes. I've been on the wrong side of these waves. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
because I was active in the community, but I wasn't mm-hmm. active in the party. I had no confusion about what party I belonged to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was asked to run that way. And then I, um, you know, you thrown into, that was the very first year of independent expenditures, 1996. Uh-huh. And it was wild because as all the money in ads is shooting over your head and you're trying to establish a voice, and the people yet at that point weren't yet sophisticated enough to know whose voice was coming at them. They always assumed it was either you or your opponent, and it was a wild ride. Um, did you enjoy it? I did. In the end, I did. Um, <laughs> It was intense, as I said, it was a very close look at the underbelly of our system. And I learned an awful lot, and I was determined then to work on the issue of money and politics, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. you could see how it played out. But that's how it started. Dan, were you writing for your own little journal when you were five years old? or how? I started writing at a pretty young age, actually. I, I, I was not at all political as a kid. Um, I grew up in Freeport, uh, Illinois, and... Um, His own class. There's a pretzel somewhere in the audience. <laughs> uh, is and, it really the pretzels? I mean, yeah, that's, that's like really the Santa the Barbara banana slugs I, 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 or something. I, I, well, you know, it, <laughs> it's... Tastier, though. There were a lot of Germans who helped settle Freeport, yeah, and apparently yeah. there was a pretzel factory, or maybe <laughs> not, but at any rate. Uh, you know, it's, it's a unique... Uh, mascot name, and, and uh, we, we, uh, we love it. Um, <laughs> I, uh, we took a vacation when I was seven years old to Colorado with another family, and we camped and all of that. Mm. And I came back and wrote like a 12-page <laughs> story about our vacation in Colorado. And I continued to do that kind of huh. sort of make-believe writing. Um, and then, but without a sense that I was going to go into journalism and certainly not to cover politics, uh, I went to the University of Illinois and kind of bounced around my freshman year. And I had an older brother, um, yes. and uh, he was in the Jern School. And he said to me at the end of my freshman year, "If you really want to do something useful with you know your time here, you should join the, the student newspaper, the Daily Illini." Um, and I did as a sophomore, and fell in love with covering the news and writing the news and all aspects, you know, when you're a student journalist, you get to do everything, uh, putting out the paper. And then at the end of that, that year, I went to Washington as a, as an intern in the office of my Congressman, John B. Anderson, who later ran for president, um, sought the Republican nomination in 80, lost it, and then ran as an independent. Uh, and those experiences fused into one, which is I thought I want to, I want to be a Washington reporter again, not, I want to cover politics for the rest of my life, but I want to be a Washington reporter. And one thing built on itself, and I've, you know, I got a couple of exceedingly lucky breaks along the way, and um, you know, have been foolish are. enough to stay with it. <laughs> so it was the late great Doug Balls who got you into it, sort yeah, of. Yeah, Doug, yes. Doug got me into it. There are two yeah. great Balls journalists. Yeah, Doug. Doug yeah. went on to have a terrific yeah. journalism career. He passed away a couple of years yeah. ago, but he worked uh, among other places at the Chicago Tribune and was the managing editor of the uh, the Tribune magazine for a number of years. Mm-hmm. David's story is kind I, of famous. I should, but I should make my ma- I yeah. should uh, signify with all these Madison people here. Yeah that uh, one of my early assignments as a political writer at the Tribune was to cover the um, 
John Anderson's running mate in, oh. Oh. <laughs> uh, in 1980, who wow. was, of course, Pat, Pat Lucy. Lucy. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. And David, I know your your uh, your beginnings are kind of. Uh, illuminated in your book, but this audience might not know it also. They haven't read the book. <laughs> Are you uh, giving it away tonight? <laughs> I'll be in the lobby. Um, I, uh, I, I had a kind of transformational event when I was five. We not, all did. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, which was that uh, John F. Kennedy came to uh, the place where I grew up was Stuyvesant Town, a housing development that was built for returning war veterans in New York. And um, I was just transfixed by this spectacle of Kennedy jumping on. This was 12 days before the 1960 election. It was so long ago that a Democrat actually had a campaign in New York. And now they just drop by to pick up cash. Um, but um, uh, he was, uh, it was just, I was so... Uh, interested in that and I just started um, paying a lot of attention you know and his brother Bobby ran for the Senate in New York and I worked for him when I was nine mm -hmm. not as the strategist <laughs> uh, and then you know I came to Chicago what did you do um, I was the field director <laughs> uh, then I came to uh, the University of Chicago to uh, really because I was interested in politics and Chicago was such a rich and interesting political town and um, uh, and uh, as, as I joked this morning when I got to the University of Chicago in 1972 I couldn't find anybody who wanted to talk about anything that happened after the year 1800 <laughs> so I, that led me into journalism and I spent 10 years in journalism in, including uh, eight at the Chicago Tribune uh, mostly as a political writer there and then I moved over to work for uh, Paul Simon, who was a congressman running for the U.S. Senate. Yeah, yeah. worthy of a hand. He's a great man. Uh, and that was it. That was, that was the, the path. How about you, David? I was so bad at everything else in life. <laughs> and as I said at the beginning, I was born with journalism in my blood. My grandfather was a printer on Coney Island. Um, my mother was a book editor. My dad was a newspaper man. My three siblings were all geniuses, and I was the dumb kid in the family and followed my dad into journalism. But David, you know, I think many people in this audience, including myself, were also touched by John Kennedy in 1960. He came here to the field house, which I lived a half block away from um, at that time. And uh, that's an experience that many of us will not forget either, yeah. that filling the field house that, that late October day. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're going to go to a couple of questions. The first one is what I was going to ask next anyway, although it's slightly put slightly differently. Um, but it's good enough to, to get any, uh, any of us going. Who has the best chance of beating Trump in 2020? <laughs> I'd say Trump. Well, let's, Dan, put it in a, let's put it a different way. Uh, um, <laughs> tell me, each of you, one person who you think is in the top tier of favorites and one person who would be your dark horse. Go ahead, Dan. 
Well, if she runs, I think Elizabeth Warren is in the top tier. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's any question about that. <clears throat> the dark horses, I mean, there are so many possibilities on that. I don't know where to start. I mean, I think that, that um, um, Kamala Harris, um, Uh, has made a mark um, mm -hmm. fairly quickly in the Senate and has captured the imagination of people and also has the, you know, the advantage of a primary calendar that might play to some of her strengths, including the fact that, uh, that California has moved up to an earlier thing, an earlier primary. Um, but the question is um, taking on Trump. Um, which I think is a very big challenge. I think that, that it is very difficult to run against him. Um, you, can't, you can't let him take you down to his level because nobody survives that. Um, and it is very difficult to take him on if you are not, in a sense, engaged and combative with him. So uh, finding that balance. Um, and, you know, and as Barbara said, to, to, find, to find a message that... You know, that rises above, in a sense, the principles and values that Democrats share that will, that will speak not only to core Democrats, but beyond that yeah. to a larger part of which, the country. I, which leads to another point. Which, uh, you know, the, the, the essential quality that you need uh, to beat Donald Trump is to be the nominee. And, you, you know, we, we speak about this. I said this earlier. We speak about this as if it is like a national, like the, the, the Voice or one of these game, uh, reality shows where people perform and then America votes and they, you know, there's a process here and it begins in Iowa and it runs through New Hampshire and Nevada, South Carolina. You're right that Californians move the primary and it was to advantage Senator Harris if she decides to run. They'll start voting, early voting, the day of the Iowa caucuses, which is something new. I suspect though, that the winner of the Iowa caucuses will suddenly vault into the picture uh, there. So one of the questions is how do you navigate the primaries and still and emerge as someone who is a strong candidate against Trump? And that's, you know, that's going to be a challenge. Mm -hmm. Now, don't ask me who can do that, because um, I, but, uh, but I, I do think that's a, issue every candidate who comes to me, um, I ask the same question, which is, well, what is your plan to get through the first four contests because it's going to winnow down the field dramatically, and, and can you raise the money to compete in those contests? Barbara? That's always the first question. Can you raise the money? Um, I think, I can't say one. There are two that okay. I find really interesting. And one is Kamala Harris, and the other is Kristen Gillibrand. Mm. I, I think she's really an interesting candidate. I was thinking yesterday that it would, of course, never have happened, but it might have been effective if the Democrats had all let Kamala Harris do all the questioning. <laughs> I've never seen a, a Judiciary Committee member That's, do that it. That would be like uh, one group of politicians to designate one in their group and say, why don't you ask all the questions? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not going to happen. <laughs> I mean, listen, you saw how those guys chafed. They couldn't contain themselves. I mentioned you guys earlier in the, yeah. the middle of the, the questioning by that prosecutor, oh, yeah. uh, I, I said that they were going to have to give Lindsey Graham a seatbelt. 
Uh, I said a muzzle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, and it didn't take long for that to break down. So. Here's a great question. Um, I would like to hear the panel discuss some of the issues that will most strongly affect young people, like climate change, cost of education, and work-life balance. I can start by saying that even today, in the midst of all of the, the craziness, um, a story in the Washington Post, right, Dan, about... Yeah. Climate about climate change, um, where the Trump administration itself had acknowledged that uh, the temperature will rise by seven degrees by 2100. And of course, they used it as a rational, rationalization to say, so who cares? Let's just pollute because it's going to happen anyway. Um, seriously. Uh, but let's address those yeah. issues. Climate change. I and income inequality, and, and, and income, let's add, because okay. I think there are um, structures in the way that we are um, creating public policy that exacerbates it, obviously, depending on what our tax policy is, et cetera. When it, um, and I think that those are the issues that are sh going to shape the lives for young people going forward. One of the issues in the um, nomination of Kavanaugh is his excitement about the possibility of overturning the Chevron deference, the way by which a law can, um, that is somewhat ambiguous, um, it leaves room for interpretation in the agency so that the experts can actually um, enforce and move it forward, is that he wants to overturn that possibility so that it, the, um, the judges get to do that. Can you talk to work-life balance? <laughs> uh, no. been, and how are you doing with that? <laughs> Mine's been out of balance for a long time. Uh, I, I agree on, the, on climate change. I, I think the issue of college cost mm -hmm. and student debt, which, which Bernie Sanders just, I mean, every time you went to a Sanders rally and he would say, well, how many people here have student debt? And, you know, huge number of the young people raised their hand. And then he would kind of go up the ladder in terms of how much. Mm -hmm. um, and it is astonishing how many people are saddled with enormous amounts of student debt. Um, and it is, it is crushing on people because the opportunities for high-paying jobs are more limited because of the nature of the economy. Uh, the ability to build up savings is more difficult because of the nature of the economy and the and the movement of people in and out of jobs. So I think this this broader question of how how the country adapts to a globalized economy uh, in which people are more on their own than ever to take care of themselves of their own finances is something that particularly affect young people. And Dan, it also affects the number of people who look at public service as a possibility yeah. because we're, you know, the pay tends to be less and you can't afford it right. if you have a great deal of debt. Yeah. Um, it, uh, akin to that is the issue of health care, though. Mm -hmm. You know, we still struggle. Um, the, the, there is the invulnerability thing with young people and the notion of... But I think there is a recognition among them that we need to do something about that and that fundamentally um, you know it is unjust to have a country in which 
um, uh, millions and millions of people go without health care. Uh, and as an economic issue, because we are so mobile, the notion that health care is tied to your employment is a real challenge for, uh, for these young, young people uh, who are moving from place to place and job to job. And I think we can't ignore the work-life balance question being one of, what, only three countries left in the entire world that doesn't have guaranteed paid maternity mm. leave, mm. which is amazing. And this, it's us and like Swaziland, Lesotho, and Papua New Guinea or something. <laughs> you know, seriously, that, well, that well. is it. The, um, and that is where I see that for all of the good intentions of men and, under, and greater sharing of family responsibilities in terms of those public policy issues, they don't hit the top of the agenda unless a woman leads it. <clears throat> I'm going to deal with four more questions. The first one is sort of parochial, but you probably answered in some way, and I'm sure that many people in this audience want to know the answer to this question. Where is the Democratic Party support for Tony Evers? I don't see the DCCC working here to support Democratic candidates. But those are two separate things. Yes, they right? are. Oh. Exactly. <laughs> I, I, I'm not I even did. sure it's true. No, but, I don't but, think it's true. But I do think, actually, that, that the Democratic Party is thoroughly, strongly behind Tony um, Evers and Mandela Barnes. We I have can, actually, this year, a superb yeah. statewide ticket. Yeah. yeah. I do think there's a growing recognition, you know, that there's nothing that gets people's attention like polls. Mm -hmm. And there's mm -hmm. a growing recognition that, wow, this could actually happen in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Scott Walker's pretty well known around mm -hmm. the country. And I, th I don't think it's lost on Democrats what it would mean to see a change of leadership here in Wisconsin, mm -hmm. uh, especially given what happened in 2016. Mm -hmm. So um, I do think that there is incoming help, and I, I expect it's going to grow in the, next, in the next 40 days. And what's happening here is happening across the Midwest, potentially. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, Michigan? It is, yeah. it is not yeah. out of the question yeah. that Iowa? by yeah. the time the mm -hmm. election is over, Democrats will hold every governorship from Kansas to Pennsylvania. If you think of the Midwest mm -hmm. or the Plains and the Rust Belt, that whole stretch, Wouldn't with, with the exception of Indiana, yeah. <laughs> All could end up yeah. in Democratic I think this camps. is going to be one of the, I think women are going to be a big story on election night, and mm -hmm. I think the, the, the transformation of the Midwest is going to be the other. This one is just for humor, I guess. Uh, how do journalists like Dan and David resist the temptation to write gossip? <laughs> what makes you think focused? we resist? <laughs> <laughs> uh, how do we resist the... Yeah, and instead focus on reporting critical facts. Well, um, you know, we're not allowed... You speak allowed, for both of us. We're not allowed to write gossip at the Washington Post. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I mean, I mean there, there, there's a lot of gossip in all journalism, or not all journalism, but there's, there's a certain amount of gossip in, in journalism. But um, I, I think that we had a managing editor named Steve Call, who's now the, the dean at Columbia, and... I remember uh, 
he would often say, and I, I think this is just such an important reminder, is that no matter what beat you are on, uh, no matter what you're covering at, at, the, at the paper, uh, you should constantly be asking yourself, what are the three or four big questions mm -hmm. about the area of coverage that you have responsibility for? And how is your coverage helping to answer those questions? It's not that one story or five stories answer those questions, but if you're not thinking about those things, then, you're, then you are often doing more trivial coverage. Uh, you get distracted. Um, it's very hard sometimes not to get distracted. But if you, if you keep your eye on those things, then you're, you know, then you're more likely to be uh, uh, doing what good journalism should do. Um, for myself, since I've written mostly in, in the area of biography, um, my whole approach has been to try to understand why people are the way they are um, and the forces that shape them, both sociologically, culturally, geographically. And so that, that's really my obsession in writing, and it's driven me uh, throughout my career, and it really, gossip doesn't play any role in that. Um, let's close with, a, with probably the most important question I could ask. What reasons, this is from a young person, what reasons do I have as a recent graduate to be optimistic for the future of our politics or our country? Yeah. Well, look, I, I said earlier I go home optimistic every day, so I don't want to turn it back on this young person. But the, um, the lack of cynicism, I, young people are skeptical, but they're not cynical. Yes. And there is a recognition that, that I think is very broad among the young people that I come in contact with that we do have responsibilities larger than ourselves and that the future isn't, as Robert Kennedy said, future is not a gift, it's an achievement. And we have to find a way to work toward that. And, and that gives me hope. I think that the, um, this, this activism that we've seen uh, in response to Trump gives me hope. The most, uh, look, the most uh, important um, tool that we have in a democracy uh, in terms of bringing about change is um, activism and voter participation. So, and I think we're gonna see a bunch of that uh, come November. But let me just make the, uh, one last point on this. I've also worked inside uh, of government and inside a White House. Um, and uh, I told this story, I will, tell, I will truncate it right now. Um, but uh, the night the Affordable Care Act passed, um, we had all worked hard on that issue, and we were in the Roosevelt Room at the White House. And um, when the final results came in, I went. I, I, they were still counting uh, on the final House vote on the Affordable Care Act, and we anticipated winning, and it was exciting. And I, I, but I found myself getting up, sort of involuntarily, and I walked into my office and I closed the door, and uh, I broke down and I and I sobbed. And I, I, I couldn't even understand why at first, but it, the, the reason really was that I have a young child, oh, I had a young child, I don't have any young children now, but uh, who had a chronic illness that almost bankrupted us when she was small, and it was a real terror. And I realized that because of what we had done that night that there would be people 
who wouldn't have to go through and families who wouldn't have to go through it. Ours went through, and I went and I found the president, and I thanked him uh, on behalf of those families. And he put his hand on my shoulder. He said, that's why we do the work. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you have the opportunity to do those things that actually touch people's lives in a way that's meaningful, um, that, that's an extraordinary thing. And, and it makes you realize how important this is and how you can actually make it, even in this ugly and... Uh, you know, dismal environment, uh, there are these rays of hope and light. Uh, and the only thing, I said this earlier to these young people I was talking to, I think the greatest threat we face as a country now is cynicism. If we allow cynicism to win this notion that we can't make a difference and that it's not worth trying, then we are really lost. I think that's very well said. I, I would only add to that that um, I think there is a resilience to this country. Um, we're clearly in a very challenging moment, and uh, we focus so much on the dysfunctional aspect of, of our national politics, and, and it certainly is dysfunctional right now. But there are, there are some amazing and powerful things and important things that are happening all over the country, uh, in the states, in cities, um, in private sector. Um, and I think that a, that, a, that a sense of the difference between the dysfunctionality and the sense of possibility that exists if people are willing to roll up their sleeves and get involved and do it uh, is one reason that we can all be optimistic. I mean, I, I, I agree with David that, um, that we all look to a younger generation, in a sense, to pull us out of this, and I don't say that as a way of, you know, putting a burden on people's shoulders, uh, but only that there there is great possibility in the ability of younger people and others uh, to lift us out of where we are at this moment. It's not going to happen overnight, um, but to uh, but but to approach it with a sense of of uh, what could be done uh, if people pitch in. I've been demoralized as I've watched on both the state and the national level the sort of systematic dismantling of important structural supports to our democracy under Scott Walker and under President Trump. But I take, I I really have a great sense of optimism right now because I see, as I said, this slate of candidates, a candidate for governor who will know where the bodies are buried and know how to begin to build it back and a team of people and a lieutenant governor coming out of the city of Milwaukee and our first um, African-American running for this position. We have a, an attorney general who candidate who is brilliant, who I think will gain quickly national stature and provide mm-hmm. leadership. And we won't have one who's suing against the ACA, but actually um, asking and leading support for it and a state treasurer who has a plan to address the student loan issue. So um, what I see is a resilience built into our democracy precisely because we have a habit of being engaged that comes from good public education and they haven't taken it out yet. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
<clears throat> I'll just say that um, I think the short term is iffy, but if we get through that, there's a great future ahead. <laughs> Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you.